Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In the first episode of season three, I spoke with Fraser Greenberg, owner of the flooring company Relative Space and now proud parent of the hottest coffee shop in Toronto, Milky's. Fraser talked to us about his vision for the future and how his two seemingly unrelated businesses, flooring and coffee, are actually serving his purpose of helping people having more fulfilling life experiences. We also talked about music and cinema, two of his passions and what legacy he's looking to leave behind. Listening to hear Fraser speak about what moves him. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at revelator underscore TO or on our website at rvltr.studio. So we're here today with uh, Fraser Greenberg, the owner of Relative Space. Thanks, Fraser, for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Arno. So let's start with a really, really hard question. Can you tell us uh, who you are and what you do? Oh, my name is Fraser. I have a retail showroom in Toronto called Relative Space. We sell wood flooring and we sell to architects, designers, and end users. We also have our own collection of wood flooring called Fuse Flooring, which we've designed ourselves. That's very oriented to the Toronto market. And my new endeavor is to have a coffee shop called Milky's, which is going to open in November in the West End of Toronto. That sounds exciting. So we'll get back to the coffee shop in a little bit because I want to go back in time and um, like you to tell us how you ended up uh, in the architecture and design product uh, industry and specifically flooring. Well, I'm actually a third generation flooring business person. My grandparents had a company called H&I Carpet uh, going back into the 70s. It was a contract carpet sales business and they ran it for years. And then my father took over where he met my mom. They got married. She f separated out and created her own company called Florex, which was over on Bedford Road in the Designer's Walk. H&I Carpet stopped existing around that time. And my mom took over and her Floorworks. And she grew that business for years until it was me and my brother's turn to take over the family business. Uh, but, you know, as the saying, never step into your father's shoes, <laughs> kind of stepped out into his sandals and made a wood flooring sales business. So still on the floors, but a different product. And we developed into a showroom called Relative Space, which uh, we grew over the years, engaging sort of in high-rise condo development, which was a good time to get into that market, of course. Mm. It's 2018 in Toronto, and there's a lot of condos now. Uh, and we grew the business. We expanded to have a showroom in New York City. Uh, then, five years ago, we moved down to the King East Design District, where we're located right now. And that's that's a really interesting story, too. There's not very many people who are uh, multi-generational business owners, so that's really cool. Um, where did you grow up? Do you grow up in Toronto? Yeah, I grew up in Toronto, uh, in this little corner between Rosedale and Forest Hill. It's like northeast of Young and St. Clair. There's this nice little pocket of homes, uh, which has the cemetery on the north side and the ravine on the right side which is a great place to grow up when there wasn't cell phones, internet, and you actually had to spend more time in nature because uh, you had your pick. You had these nice landscaped 
cemetery with beautiful trees and lots of animals and a great place to walk around and get lost in your thoughts. Then you had the ravine, which was sort of a wild counterpart to it. And the contrast between the two was great for just, you know, being alone and walking around your neighborhood. So how would that uh, unique combination of landscapes and nature available at your fingertips um, have influenced you? Well, I spent a lot of time walking through the ravine in particular. Um, just sort of, you know, I think I had a Discman at the time. It wasn't <laughs> even mini-disc yet, so it was a giant uh, CD player that you carried with you. And, you know, I was listening to my dad's music and I was walking around uh, and just sort of, you know, it was a good place to get lost in your thoughts. I don't think I know directly how it affected me, but I think sort of the, you know, nature has a way of imposing itself on your thoughts, whether you want it to or not. Mm -hmm. and so I think the wildness of the one space uh, probably led to a different type of thinking than the more manicured nature of the cemetery would have. Um, so I don't know directly how those affected me, but I think they guided my thinking in a certain way. And so um, going a little deeper into that childhood, uh, what were you like as a kid? I liked to rollerblade. That probably said a lot. Uh, but for the most part, I think I was a pretty quiet kid. I wasn't overly social. I kind of had a small, tight-knit group of friends. And, you know, I really enjoyed listening to music. Uh, I remember grunge was huge when I was young, <laughs> which is a genre that history has forgotten now, unfortunately. Except for people our age. Yeah, people our age still love it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think mostly it was just, uh, you know, this quiet sort of kid that enjoyed you know, hanging out with his friends and we play sports. There was a school into the schoolyard which had a baseball diamond. So it was fun playing baseball with our friends. And um, I think that my interests back then were pretty basic for kids. I don't think I really had much of an idea of what I was going to do in life. I never thought of, you know, the world of design, architecture, entrepreneurship, or any of those things. I was mostly just, you know, looking forward to the summer and the weekends which there's nothing wrong with. So you kind of answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What did you want to be growing up? Or is that something you figured out later on or even you fell into and you didn't really have to think about it? Well, I dreamed of being an astronaut. That was probably just a dream. <laughs> it wasn't really a goal I ever planned to pursue. Uh, then when I went to university, I guess it's usually when you have a good idea of what you want to be. Mm -hmm. And I enrolled in a couple courses. I enrolled in Buddhism economics, and writing, rhetoric, strategy, and style. Um, the economics in Buddhism didn't really hold my interest for too long, uh, but the writing was interesting. I think that at a certain point in school, maybe after a couple years of being lost, not knowing I wanted to do, I realized that writing was the one practical skill I could have picked up. So I ran with that. And I kind of just took that while I started, you know, working with my parents in their business, getting a feel for what they do. And it was interesting, you know, understanding what your parents actually do is, uh, is an interesting thing to explore in itself. Uh, because I think a lot of times we, you know, think this is what my parents' profession is, but to actually know what they're doing is a different thing altogether. So I started working with them, uh, also working other jobs at the same time. I remember in university having a whole slew of very random jobs from being a night shift security guard to working in a grocery store stocking shelves. Um, and then also working Saturdays uh, doing retail sales for flooring. So can you tell us a little more about all those odd jobs and maybe some of the more interesting ones? Or even if you have some interesting or crazy stories that you're willing to share? Um, the, well, I mean, doing most of those jobs didn't last too long. The longest one was actually stocking shelves at the grocery store. I started when I was 14. And, you know, I was stocking the shelves and I had a huge opportunity to promotion. 
when I was about 15 because the grocery store started doing deliveries. And this was up at St. Clair. It was Bruno's at St. Clair and Heath Street. And in the neighborhoods, a lot of really nice old ladies. And I was a cute 15-year-old boy with long hair. And so I didn't have too much trouble getting tips. Uh, and it was probably a pretty valuable lesson in, you know, customer service, which is great when you're going into sales, uh, which was one of the next odd jobs that I did. And that is doing door-to-door uh, -door insurance sales. Uh, that was only a single day that I survived. <laughs> I went to the first, uh, it was really funny. I was with these two guys in the truck and we we're driving around and they were supposed to train me. But, um, you know, this wasn't a job that really encouraged a lot of you know, dedication from their employees. I think it was a job that people did because it paid quite well and there was no commitments. So we go, I got maybe 10 minutes of training on the drive to the first house and we pull up and the two guys are like, okay, you start this one. And I was like, I guess I got a script. I can do this. I get to the door. I knock. Someone answers the door and I start reading the script and it goes well. They're listening. They're not interrupting me. They're not saying anything. Uh, and then things go really bad because they say, that's great. Why don't you come in and we'll talk some more? And I have no experience with training and my script is over now. Mm -hmm. And now I'm inside this guy's house and he's serving me tea. And he's like, well, uh, tell me more about what it is you're selling. And at this point, I had to confess to him that I'd never made it this far before. <laughs> and I told him that this was the price and that was the best I could offer him. And he said no and I left. And that was the last day of the job. That's funny. I once had a job, uh, a very different, but it was uh, picking uh, apricots in the fields mm -hmm. that a summer, and I didn't last uh, more than a day and a half because I couldn't go fast enough. So those experiences are always fun where you're you're thrown in the deep end, you don't know what you're doing. And I was 16 at the time, so um, great memory. I cried that day because I, I, I was fired, and it was my first job ever, and I couldn't keep it. It was mm -hmm. pretty shameful, but... It's a good lesson, right? Yeah. A good kick in the ass. It's good to know what you don't like to do as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a similar uh, firing when I was a ripe young age too, uh, where I offered to shovel all my neighbor's yards. And I think this was the winter of about 96. I don't know if you remember, but this was a, it was a horrible snowstorm. So there was like feet of snow everywhere. Way too much work for like a young boy to ever have shoveled. And I remember like I was out there shoveling and just sweating and doing as much as I could, but I couldn't keep up with what I'd promised. And I remember uh, one day I was just in the basement and I heard a knock on the door and my parents went to answer it. And it was my neighbor who came to complain about my work that I was doing. <laughs> and I heard my mom answer the door and it was, of course, really sweet because she defended me. But, you know, it still did hurt that, like, you know, failing at a job never feels good. And uh, I think I returned the money shortly after that and never did it again. Well, we'll talk about failure a little later, but I think those are great lessons, especially to learn early on, because nowadays we live in a culture where kids are sheltered from the reality of life and then they, they come of age to start working and it's a huge issue, right? Because they're not ready for the for the, the working world. It's true. I think we're, we're given pictures of the dream a lot more than the work it takes to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's spot on. So if you could do it all over again, would you pick a different career? I would pick some different starting careers. I probably wouldn't have shoveled snow or stacked <laughs> grocery shelves, but the career that I ended up with uh, no, I actually quite enjoy it. I think that, you know, obviously it's quite a privileged position to be able to enter into a family business. And one of the nicest things about it is that I think you're afforded a lot more freedom than you are if you were just an employee. Mm -hmm. Because I think you have the ears of the owners a bit better when you're their child. Um, I mean, not to say that it's, you know, a walk in the park. My parents are pretty hard too. But um, I don't think I would have changed what I would have done. I think that I learned a lot of valuable lessons and... 
I think that the field that I'm in, uh, which, you know, the world of architecture and design is interesting. It evolves at a fantastic pace. Uh, and it's also, I think, one of the most meaningful fields to be in now because so many, you know, the problems that we see in the world are solvable through these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a great way to sort of enter it and to sort of lay the groundwork for my thinking in it afterwards. Yeah, the power of design, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is a great segue into the, the next question because our A&D is a very creative field and you probably deal with creative people on a daily basis. So what is the place of creativity in your life? I find a good starting point for me when it comes to creativity is looking you know, at the problem that, you know, that I'm trying to solve uh, or whether what it is I'm trying to achieve and seeing sort of what tools are available and seeing how you can piece those together to find something. Um, I enjoy reading, you know, a lot of philosophy and I read a lot of, you know, art books and I look at sort of, you know, how people in the past of, you know, the world they come from, uh, how they've managed to solve the problems that existed for them. So what, what do you do in, in your everyday life uh, that would fulfill your creative drive or your need to be creative? Well, the business offer, offers a lot of opportunities for that. Uh, I think through relative space where I'm predominantly the marketing or as I often say, I'm the voice of the company. Uh, that's a, a great place to do it because in many ways I can shape people's thinkings about the product. I can help people focus on things outside of say just a color or you know, outside of just the size of a piece of wood. Uh, it offers a lot of opportunities to help people see things in a different way. And I have uh, my other businesses, which I'm doing, which is the Fuse Flooring, which is also helpful to kind of develop the different types of products that exist to sort of look at the landscape of design and what flooring that exists and see, you know, hey, what are people looking for in this? What isn't there? What kind of design ideas are being expressed in the world of, you know, architecture and design blogs and magazines? Uh, and how are those ideas not being expressed in flooring? Because in many ways, flooring isn't really the most cutting edge of design products. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it tends to be quite safe. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that the sort of, you know, atmospheres that people are creating can't be expressed through flooring. It just doesn't exist yet. So I find that's quite a very, you know, fertile place to go to, to think of. So I've had the privilege to get really close to your products for mm. extended periods of time. And they're beautiful uh, as a, an object even. But um, how does a new type of flooring or wood flooring in your case, because that's what you do. How does that come about? Like when, how do you come up with a new product, a new color, a new texture, and how do you know or have a good hunch that it, it might be successful in the marketplace? There's a lot of factors that go into a wood floor. Uh, I know most of the thinking tends to revolve around simply a color, but uh, wood itself, you know, of course, is a natural material. And I think wood has its own, you know, intrinsic beauty. And I think the best way to make a floor is to find ways to enhance that intrinsic appeal of the material rather than trying to create something that sort of matches your idea of what wood should look like. Mm -hmm. um, if you're starting from the point where you say like, these are the characteristics of the wood that you're cutting down to make a product out of, you can end up in a much more considered place than if you just say, you know, make it dark brown. So when you're looking at wood flooring, I think there's a couple of things. You have to think of first the market that it's going into. Uh, which in Toronto, of course, you know, we're coming from a place where everyone probably grew up with one or two flooring types. That is the strip flooring that's in all the Victorian homes mm -hmm. or the parquet sort of sandwich style look that was in all the high rises. Mm -hmm. um, and if people are coming from this point, how can you present something 
to them that's going to be appealing. And I think you can take two approaches. You can be something that's completely different or exotic, like the Scandinavian look, which is so popular these days. Or you can take something that feels like the next step in the flooring that they're familiar with. So one of the new products that we're about to launch is a type of flooring that works with the idea of the strip floors that everyone's seen in the Victorian homes in Toronto. It's dimensionally very similar to those, uh, but it's remixed in a certain way to make it fresh again, such as herringbone floors or paneled floors that use the same material. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a certain appeal in that type of you know, progress in wood flooring because flooring lasts a long time. And whether we like it or not, we're going to attach memories to our floors mm -hmm. because we're going to grow up with them and we'll have spent a decade of our lives with the same one. You know, sometimes we even pick up on knots on the floor that we might find interesting. We can remember them. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can take this sort of base memory and bring it into something new, I think you have an opportunity to really reach people on an emotional level that wouldn't be possible if you were just, you know, cutting down a tree and making the floor. Mm -hmm. So I read this book years ago and I read it several times called In Praise of Shadows. Have you ever read it? No, I haven't. It, it's, it was written by a Japanese author and it's, um, it's all about the Japanese aesthetic, especially around uh, experiencing uh, spaces and materials in the dark. Mm -hmm. And the way you talk about your flooring is almost reminiscent of that because it's, I would call it almost poetic in the sense that you're really looking to uh, present a natural material in a noble and honest way, as opposed to being a flooring supplier who just sells flooring and doesn't really care about those details. So I think that speaks a lot about how you think about your business. But do you do you want to add something to that? I think that something about wood flooring that makes it unique is that in an age where so many products are disposable and they don't last that long, Wood flooring, like furniture and a few other product categories, are very long-lasting. Uh, wood flooring may be one of the possessions you will own the longest in your entire life. And I think that it's important that it has more depth to it than just an aesthetic. I think it has to be more than just a finish. Um, and I think uh, a book I read uh, a while back called The Architecture of Happiness by Alain de Botton. I read that book too. Which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how your home ultimately kind of becomes this place that also embodies your personality and it's reflected through the things that you have in it. And I think it's important to consider that when you are making a product that's going to last in that house for as long as it's inhabitants. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it shows that you care about what you do more than just uh, being just um, a flooring showroom that people come to buy stuff and mm -hmm. 10 years from now it's ripped up because it's shoddy material that didn't mm. last, right? So I think that that's something I can really appreciate. And I think the audience of the podcast will appreciate as well. Um, and, and there seems to be a movement of uh, less, uh, doing less and, and with better quality stuff in general, at least some kind of, let's call it minimalist movement of people. And I'm certainly one of them or strive to be one of them who want less but better stuff and are willing to pay money for good material, but just not fill their house with all the crap from China that breaks down within a month of owning it. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it, it, it's really cool, I think. Yeah, I think I remember reading somewhere as well a great quote about minimalism, which is that uh, minimalism is an achievement of knowing what matters. And I think that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's definitely a good way to go about when you're being a consumer. Absolutely. Um, so I've I've read somewhere that um, at least at some point I don't know if you still do it you were involved in art and making murals and all that kind of stuff 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we used to have a showroom up on DuPont Street. Actually, two locations, at 113 DuPont. That's when my mom was at the helm. And then we moved to 365 DuPont, which is where she was still at the helm, but the transition occurred there from Floorworks to relative space. And it was an interesting being up there. It was very different than King East because mm -hmm. we're a destination showroom. So the mindset of people visiting you, for one, is very different because if they made it all the way up there, they probably wanted to see you. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they wanted to see you, it's probably because they had an interest in what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And I felt that in a situation where you are a draw of people to your neighborhood, I think there's a bit of a responsibility to represent the community that you're part of. And so it started with this display window we had that looked out onto DuPont Street. And we initially engaged with some local graffiti artists to do murals inside the display window, which we would use then to, you know, as a backdrop for the settings that had our flooring in them. Mm -hmm. And eventually it evolved after a couple of years to a collaboration with OCAD and a class they offered there called Painting the Extended Field, mm -hmm. where one of the projects the students would create was a window display that would, in a loose way, you know, promote our products, but really was more so an opportunity for them to just create a nice, interesting uh, work. So it was a great opportunity for them to, you know, have their first sort of commission, because mm -hmm. uh, it was a sort of commissioned work that went there. Um, as well, you know, it was nice to sort of bring in a bit of a sort of art component to the area. Uh, again, going to the idea that when you're a destination, I don't think you're constrained by the typical retail store's limitations. I think you can do things with a bit more personality. So we did that. We, used to, we hosted a bunch of parties over there as well. We sponsored the Interior Design Show's Conversation Design Symposium, which existed back in 2012 and 13. And we hosted some interesting parties there. It had everything from, we had a, a fantastic installation by uh, Forno Cultura where they created this uh, balance board that had biscotti on it. And as the <laughs> night went on, people would eat from either side, which sort of threw it off balance. So it was an interesting way of marking time. And uh, we had other fun things that architecture firms create these uh, models out of butter tarts and maple syrup. <laughs> uh, so a very Canadian design sort of idea mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, so do you still do that kind of stuff? Or is that something that you can't really do with the new showroom? We still do them, but in a different way. It's a lot harder with our showroom down on King East. Um, one, the nature of the showroom is different. Uh, First, it is much more retail oriented in that there's a lot of people that walk by. We don't really have a delineated display window, which makes it tougher. Mm -hmm. um, but we still try to do interesting things. We try to engage uh, people. I mean, almost everything we do is with local talent. And we try to work a lot with people who are going to maybe put a little bit of an X factor onto the products we sell. Uh, and to give a little context to that is that all the products we sell are imported from Europe. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the marketing of these products don't really coincide with, you know, North Americans' interests. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can simply say made in Europe and maybe that's enough for people. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's good to add a little more depth to the product. And so we try to do things uh, to make it a little bit more interesting. So whether it is, you know, engaging with designers to talk about it. We recently started doing interviews about projects we've worked on or whether it's about, you know, providing material for installations uh, across the city. Uh, we still do a little bit, but it isn't what it used to be. And, and so at the beginning of the previous question, you, you mentioned that you wanted to be part of the community at the old location and you wanted to foster that kind of community culture and atmosphere. Um, I think that's the perfect segue into the coffee shop um, because a coffee shop, in my mind, is a place for the community to gather. So 
Can you tell us more about the coffee shop, what the concept is behind it and what you hope to accomplish when uh, when it opens in... In November? November-ish. Well, at an issue there, it might be December. Um, but if I can go back to the relative space for just one second, mm -hmm. is one thing we just started doing is there is a uh, local group called the King East Design District, which is run by the BIA. Mm -hmm. And recently I've been out there trying to recruit a whole bunch of showrooms to partake in more design events in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get everyone on board to be part of the to-do festival, which is the Toronto offsite mm -hmm. design. And, you know, we just finished putting that together. There's a whole bunch of showrooms and we're working on creating programming right now to show out across the whole district. So it's community in a different way, maybe just getting everyone together to represent themselves. Um, and then for the coffee shop, which is uh, called Milky's, is over at Dundas and Bathurst. And uh, for the coffee shop, I've done a couple of things uh, to try and really encourage some community engagement. Uh, first thing is I've been trying to work with all local people to do everything. Uh, so we have a local architects, we have uh, you know, the graphic design, we have the social media and all of that will be done by local people. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them are my friends too. I really thought it was important to engage people that I know to be part of it. Because I think it's nice if your personality is reflected through your store as well. Mm -hmm. And so I've kind of got all my friends together and we started thinking and everyone has their own unique skill set so they can contribute a little bit of their own sort of personality to the thing. Mm -hmm. And we've done all of that and uh, we kind of put it together. And I think once it's built, it's going to, you know, it's going to attract, I hope, a fair amount of local people. Mm -hmm. I hope uh, that people will come by and they'll see that it is more of a community-styled space. And some things that we're doing to really encourage that, though, is uh, for, for the social media we've set up, uh, in the store, there's two workstations for people, and they're really designed to be as a workstation. They're not intended to be too, uh, it's intended, to, sorry, to have a lot of seating. Mm -hmm. so these two spots is that, you know, we want to encourage people to come in, sit down, and really just take their time and enjoy it. Uh, and I want to provide a lot more hospitality than would normally be possible for a coffee shop with, say, you know, 10 or 20 seats. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we're going to do is we want to use, of, you know, our Sarah Instagram account is just to feature the people who will be working there. So that when they come in, uh, you know, we can take their picture. They can write a bit about who they are and talk about their work. And people can learn all about, you know, the local people of the Milky's area just from going onto the Instagram account. It's a really clever way, actually, to bring social media back into the community as opposed to just spreading it out to the world without a goal in sight, right? So how did you come up with this idea of a a unique coffee shop and I you didn't talk about um, what you told me before um, which was the more uh, uh, coffee tasting program if that's still on the menu can you talk a little bit about that yeah so one thing we're doing that's a little different is that on Sundays we want to have a ticketed seating where you would come in you'd reserve uh, time and it's somewhere between like a wine tasting and a tea ceremony where you'll sit down. And again, there's only two tables, so it's nice and small. It's quite intimate. And we have, uh, we're working with a roaster in Toronto who has some of you know, the highest uh, scoring coffees that you can get. And we're going to use these fantastic beans, which really do have flavor profiles that are completely different from what you'd expect. And we're going to create a sort of food pairing and coffee experience where someone will come, they will teach you about the coffee, and they will serve it to you in different ways uh, with some food. And you get a nice sort of enjoyable one-hour session where you can really learn a lot about coffee. And I think one of the things I really want to focus on with this is that one of the best things you can do uh, when someone comes to you as a customer is to teach them a little bit about 
what they like and what they like the products you're serving. So mm-hmm. if someone can come in and they can taste the coffee and they realize that, hey, this is the type of coffee that I really like, uh, I think that's the best accomplishment we can have. Yeah, if, if, if I can come into your store and you can introduce me to a coffee that I'm likely to like, it's going to be a great experience. So I think that's a really interesting concept. And it's more than just your local shop where you go get your coffee in the morning on your way to work, right? Which I, mm-hmm. I also think it's really cool. So how did that, how did you come up with the idea and what made you even want to start a coffee shop in the first place? Oh, it was a bit of a whim. So it wasn't the best start to a coffee shop. I think initially my brother and I were interested in opening one uh, at Relative Space over at King of Parliament. We thought it would be a nice compliment to the store uh, that we could use some of the space as a bit of a showcase for wood flooring and that people would come in, they could enjoy some coffee, they could experience wood on perhaps a more intimate level than they would in another place. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the the groundwork for this whole coffee shop. But then you know, as it started going and, you know, some of the realities of trying to create two businesses when the single space mm-hmm. uh, start to show up, you realize that maybe it's not the best idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should do a coffee shop somewhere else. And now suddenly you're dealing with the same business idea, but in a whole new environment. And then I started rethinking the entire idea. Like, is it now just a showcase for wood, but without a wood showroom next to it, does that even make sense? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what, what can it be? So, once that seed was planted, I couldn't give up anymore. So I had to keep going and we took, I took the idea and it sort of evolved into what it is now. Uh, and it is very different, I think, from the original idea, which is just like a place to come in and sort of sit down and be relaxed. I think there's an opportunity that exists in the morning when people get coffee, uh, particularly when they, you know, they're just getting off the TTC. It's probably bad weather because it's either winter or it's the middle of summer. So it's really hot or really cold. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably got up too late, didn't have enough time to get ready for work. And their first experience with a human is oftentimes with a barista at a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And I think this combination of things, this, you know, being a little bit sleepy, uh, really wanting coffee, because I think uh, there is a strong desire for coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this first interaction with the person, uh, I think people are vulnerable to being put into a very good mood. And I've really taken that sort of thinking and tried to create a space uh, and hospitality and everything that would really take advantage of a person to put them in a good mood. I really wanted to focus on what can you do to make someone's day? And so the whole space is bright and colorful. Uh, The name is a little bit funny. uh, And I want to sort of have this kind of joyous experience when people walk in. I wanted to feel something that makes them happy. And that was really the basis of the idea when it started growing into what it is now. Yeah, I think that's a critical key to that puzzle because uh, in my neighborhood and the coffee shop shall remain nameless, but uh, there's a coffee shop I used to go to. I, I don't go because I spent too much money on coffee, but I used to go every morning and the morning people were super nice and we'd always have a chat and friendly and we're not friends, but we're friendly acquaintances. And their afternoon stuff is always horrible. They're like shorts and they don't really acknowledge you and it's like give me your money I'll give you your coffee and I'm always and I know who who is who so when I go and I see the wrong person behind the counter I'm like I tense them and say shit this is gonna be a bad experience and even though I'm just buying a coffee and at the end of the day I'm not I don't need to be friends with the people but I think you're onto something because it's like the slightest change in behavior or mood or expression can make or break your day, right? And if someone is smiley and and nice and friendly, it makes a huge difference. And I think you're right in the morning. It's like um, 
and it's a bit of a personal experience as well. When I walk in the morning in my neighborhood, I try to say hello to people and smile, just even as an exercise to cheer myself up. And some people don't care, don't acknowledge you, and some people just light up when you say hello. Mm-hmm. So I think there's really something to that, right? Yeah, I think there is. And you know, to sort of relate it to the thinking about wood, is that coffee can be just a tool. But that whole experience can be a whole lot more to it. And I think that there is an ability to have some sort of emotional reaction to that experience. And I think it's very possible to make that positive. I think the personality of the people, the barista, is also one of the hardest things to do because um, there's a lot of fantastic baristas across Toronto and there's tons of people with great personalities. But you have to find the right personality for the right space too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the hardest pieces of the puzzle. And that's a great, uh, great point. I just delivered a talk on uh, the importance for design businesses to have a strong vision, mission, and core values, because as a way to create a strong culture for a business to succeed. And uh, a big part of that is finding the right people. And when you have those things in place and a strong foundation, it's a lot easier to find those people. So what is your vision? Um, And we can go on multiple levels. You can start wherever you want, but Maybe we should start with the coffee shop. What's your vision for this coffee shop and how are you looking to make a difference? Well, I think my vision for it is is definitely about the idea of creating the most positive experience possible for someone in the morning. A, a lot of it is to sort of increase people's appreciation uh, for coffee, uh, but not just coffee, also the ability of a space to have an impact on you. Um, aside from just serving delicious coffee, which we plan to do, uh, we also are going to have a whole bunch of hospitality-related ideas that are different from other places. So if you remember, I was mentioning how we have the two sort of workstations that we're designing to make it comfortable for people to work there. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want people to feel welcome. And part of that is uh, when you sit down and then you take off your coat and you set up your laptop, uh, I really want someone to come over and just have a nice gesture, like putting a flower on the desk to make you feel welcome. And we're even, uh, me and my friend Christian are designing a collection of uh, serving where for the shop so that all of the things that will be served in the coffee shop will be designed around this idea of hospitality. So the way that, say, a platter is held when it comes to you is a very uh, important thing to consider because mm-hmm. I think that, you know, holding something, say, like on a tab and placing it down in front of someone is a much more elegant gesture than sort of plopping something in front of them. And yeah. I really want all of these things to be very thoughtful Mm -hmm. uh, so that when people sit there and they see all these sort of subtle things that might be different from a normal service, that they can appreciate the thought that goes into it and how a space has the ability to really affect them. So so it sounds like it's about the the complete experience and not just the coffee, the the space and the feeling and the space and all that stuff. Can you talk a little bit, um, I don't know if you can reveal that, um, about the team that you had to design this coffee shop and who who helped you... uh, Put it together. Well, we worked with uh, Bate Shorba, architects. Uh, we worked with Andrew, who's been incredibly patient with us because he started the initial design over at 330 King Street East. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we broke his heart and told him it wasn't going to happen, <laughs> uh, we did, you know, help him out by telling him we're going to do it in a new shop. And uh, he's been super helpful and patient in putting the shop together. He really took the initiative and in coming up with a really interesting way to express this product that we have, uh, this sort of wood flooring, which is a unique shape to it. Mm -hmm. And he took this and he created this fantastic pattern, which has sort of been the basis for everything else that's happened in the shop Mm -hmm. afterwards. Uh, So he's been fantastic to work with. 
Then we've had our branding, which was done by a company called Anagramma. Uh, they're really nice. They are a branding agency based out of Mexico. We've worked with them three times in the past as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they sort of took all the ideas that we have, these sort of vague concepts about what we want to achieve, and they you know, took that through their process into a really interesting concept. Uh, they you know, combining it with what Andrew had done with us, they created an interesting visual for the company. Um, and then we've also worked with uh, local roasters, which have been super helpful in educating us, particularly me, about <laughs> coffee and learning all about the world of coffee itself, which uh, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I had really had no idea of sort of the depth of, you know, thinking that goes into coffee. And it's been really nice. Yeah, I've been, I'm just super you know, thankful that all these different people are willing to help out, whether it's just spending time to sort of teach me a bit about the world that I'm about to enter into, or, you know, being a sounding board for ideas, or just simply giving me great ideas at the same time. And that's interesting you say that, because it's been said that when you have a strong vision for something, um, people will want to help you, because they can see how that would benefit, um, let's just say, the world, to be very broad. Was that your experience that when you talked about your coffee shop to those people, they they instantly said, yes, I want to be part of this because it's an awesome idea? There is definitely a part of that. I think when I talk about my vision, I do it in a different way. While I have a strong vision, I tend to talk about it in a more vague manner. I like to talk about ideas of making people happy rather than this is how we're going to do it. And I think when you speak about things in that way, people find it easier for their ideas to fit within that vision. And I think that adds a bit more enthusiasm at the same time. And it makes it a lot easier to, to work with people. And it's true, they do really want to work on a project when, you know, of course, everyone wants to be invested in a project and not just be doing drawings. Mm-hmm. So I think it does help a lot to have a, a good vision and also to be able to express it well. And so outside of the coffee shop, um, in your life in general, do you have a sort of vision or a purpose or something that gets you out of bed in the morning and what would that be? Well, I do enjoy working quite a lot. So that's one thing. I do have a tendency to take on far more projects than I should. Um, you know, keeping in mind that this coffee shop is being made in my spare time between running uh, relative space infused flooring. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a lot of rewards that are found in work. Uh, I know we all have our own ways of finding them. Uh, but I find creating these things is uh, really enjoyable for me. I really enjoy, you know, doing things for other people. Uh, You know, I ran a, for over a year, I had sort of a Friday night dinner party where I would invite friends over, friends of friends, and sort of anyone was welcome. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, a lot of reward in just doing those sorts of things. It makes you feel good to do good things. And I think I'm going to try and trace this back to where this feeling comes from, is that, uh, you know, my father way back, mm-hmm. was a consultant, an environmental consultant for the government of Ontario. And I think that sort of environmental responsibility relates in many ways to this desire to, you know, help other people, uh, but help in the sense of make them feel better. And there's a sense of greater good that's in environmentalism. And I think that doing that kind of thing does, uh, gets me out of bed and makes me feel pretty good. That's a good enough reason to, uh, to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're way ahead of the curve when it comes to, you know, knowing why you do what you do. And, you know, I, I, I got to say, I'm pleasantly surprised. And even though we, we've known each other for a while, to hear that there's so much thought behind what you do and 
It's not just, oh, we're going to make more money or we're going to peddle more products. There's something bigger than that. And that's very, very um, not only reassuring, but it's, it, you know, for someone like me, it makes me want to be part of it too. So Yeah, I think I had a, this sort of nightmare when I was probably around, you know, 20 something. I think we all start being really obsessed with money. I think we, to some degree, we all look at, you know, fancy cars or giant mansions and we really desire them. Uh, but, you know, I think one day, day I sort of had this thought that like, if all I was doing it for was money, it was, what's the point? You know, why not just do something that's just about money? I, there's a ton of different industries that would just be about that. And I think that I realized that making money alone wouldn't give me the reward I'd need to get out of bed every morning and, you know, make me feel enthusiastic about doing the work that I do. And so I was lucky that my dad was an environmental consultant because mm. I think that is something it's hard to look poorly at environmentalism. And I think that sort of gave me a bit of that, that drive. No, that's great. So let's go back a little bit to your career. And if you were to take stock of what you've done since you started in this business or what you would consider the start of your professional career, how different is it now from when you started and in what ways? Uh, so when I started... I mean, I was definitely not the best employee at the family business. I was in university. I probably cared less about work than I did about my studies, and I didn't care about my studies. And I, you know, every kid in university wants to do the same thing, which is have fun. And I think I focused a lot more on that. And uh, I mean, there's one horrible story I want to tell you about how, you know, one night, you know, of course we go out and you get up the next day. And I really slept in, like very late. And I was supposed to open the shop on a Saturday. <laughs> and I didn't get out of bed until 11, which is an hour after we opened. And I get to the office and at the front door, there's a lineup of like five people waiting to get in. And I was, you know, not in the best mood. It stressed me out even thinking of dealing with these people. So I joined the line and started spreading dissent, just telling people like, oh, this place isn't going to open, like, this is terrible, like, we should just leave and come back another day. And I get everyone to disperse. I wait a couple of minutes to make sure everyone's gone, unlock the door, and had the worst day at work I've ever had. Um, I wish I was a bit more responsible. I think that's the moral of that story. And, you know, the lesson, of course, is to be responsible. But uh, that's probably what stopped me from actually, you know, developing anything else and sort of changing what my responsibilities were for years. Mm -hmm. um, at a certain point, I realized that, like, yes, you have to do hard work and you really have to dedicate yourself to something to, you know, be successful at it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when, you know, the opportunities arose, not because they weren't there before, but I think because I had the confidence to sort of tackle bigger things than I did uh, when I was just an irresponsible kid. And that's a very interesting story. And I think there's some great lessons in there. Um, did you ever have like a pivotal moment in your career where you woke up one day or you had an epiphany and you said, uh, this is what I want to do. This is the direction I want to take. And like you kind of did a, did a 180 um, compared to what you would have done before. Yeah, there. I don't know if it happened in a single day, but definitely an epiphany that happened was at a certain, you know, you kind of, you enter a job and you sort of doing what you're doing and you get good at it and you know what you can do. Um, and, you know, you can spend all this effort becoming as good as you can at it, whether it's mm -hmm. more efficient or, you know, just doing more work. Mm -hmm. um, but then at a certain point, I think you start to realize that not only can you do it, you can do whatever you want. You can decide how it's done. It's mm -hmm. not just a matter of getting the job. So it's like, once you know how to do that job, I think you can look at the bigger picture and say like, hey, how does this fit within the, you know, the whole thing? How does it fit within like the company or within whatever it is we're trying to do? And I think realizing that 
that you can sort of do those things, you can sort of take control at that point. It's not just about doing the job. It's about what is the job for and how can you do something with it. How did that materialize? What was the transformation? Well, I think that's when I started, you know, becoming more of a leader within the company, which is not just, you know, being a salesperson, but also, you know, I think when you are in a company and you're sort of a leader, I think you have responsibilities to the people that work for you. Um, I think, you know, their livelihood becomes part of your concern. And I think it's very important that as a leader, you don't just, you know, do your job or and make people do their jobs. I think it's about creating a good environment for people to feel good in, to train them mm -hmm. in a way to look at it as more than just a job as well, so that they're not just selling, for example, wood flooring, but they can look at it the same way that I can look at it, where they can see that the product is more than just a product. Um, so let's stop talking about work for a little bit. And um, can you tell us what you do outside of work for fun that you enjoy doing or hobbies that you have? Yeah, I mean, my two biggest hobbies are music and film. I probably listen to music all day. I'm the person that sits in their office with headphones on, mm -hmm. listening to music and making Spotify playlists, <laughs> uh, which is absolutely my favorite activity. And uh, whether I'm biking to work, I'm listening to music, if I'm in my car, whatever it may be. Um, and I actually really enjoy music because, uh, particularly instrumental music, uh, I think that instrumental music has ability to, you know, emote things in a different way than when lyrics are imposed on the music. Because mm -hmm. as soon as there's a voice, the person saying it affects how you interpret the words. And so it doesn't matter what the words are if you don't like the voice. Whereas, you know, a piano, it's hard to hate the sound of a piano, unless you fully just hate the piano. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think there's so much uh, ability for music to be emotional. And there's so many different ways for music to be made that, and especially right now, we're sort of living in this renaissance of music. I mean, we're actually a little bit late into it, but if we go back to the days of like Napster and LimeWire and all those great sites, uh, and then SoundCloud, where there was now a platform for people who were just making music for fun, mm -hmm. uh, anyone could upload music and anyone could make an album. And it's so easy now. You just have a laptop. You don't even need a new laptop. I think you can get a 10-year-old one and install some program on that and probably make music. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot more creativity that exists in music. And I think there's a lot more uh, access to this creativity because someone doesn't need to publish music for you to listen to it. You can just go into SoundCloud right now and listen to you know, a remix of your favorite song by some guy who's probably just made his first track. Mm -hmm. And then film is the other hobby that I really like. I really enjoy getting into directors. I prefer like the auteur style people, the ones sort of write, direct, produce their own films that sort of take control of the whole package. Um, and I really enjoy finding a director and just getting into their style. Like, how are they telling stories? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll find a director uh, and I'll just start watching his films from the beginning to the end and just looking at how do they tell the same story that other person did. And it's kind of, I know this is uh, unpopular opinion, but I really enjoy remakes because the best thing about it is that you can see how two different people approach the same story. And I think the difference in storytelling is fascinating. Uh, particularly when it's, years and years apart or even decades apart because mm -hmm. you can analyze it forever you can look at you know what are the societal differences what are the audience differences um or as my favorite part is just what is the difference between how the directors wanted to tell the story mm -hmm. so who's the latest director you got into the latest director i got into is it's a Korean director who directed well he directed this new movie called burning which is going to be coming out soon 
Mm-hmm. And so I've been watching his older films um, because Burning is, it was shown at Cannes, uh, apparently got one of the greatest responses at Cannes in recent times. And it's based off of a novel by Murakami, who's one of my favorite authors. Um, so I really want to watch this movie and I really want to enjoy it, but I feel like to really get the best experience of it, I should go back. I should mm-hmm. watch his previous movies and see like, how does this guy tell his stories so that when I go into it, I really can get, you know, a much deeper experience. What do you think of directors that have uh, created or built an entire universe? And I'm thinking, I guess the most telling example I can think of right now is Guillermo del Toro. What's uh, what's your take on on that kind of work? I think that's uh, very difficult. Like building a world is so difficult because I think on the surface, a world's easy. You can think in you know genre ideas, like a sci-fi world or a fantasy world. But I think once you actually enter into that world, there's so many little details that are essential to that world being believable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it's really difficult, particularly, uh, you know, I think Lord of the Rings being translated from a book into a movie uh, is so difficult. Because I think in, when you read a book, it's very easy to describe things. Uh, you can talk about, for example, the way a shoe looks. And your mind will fill in so much of the rest of the details because you already have an idea of what this world looks like because of the genre you're reading within. But in a film, I don't think you have that luxury because everything is visual. And I think the ability of someone to create that is phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, nerd alert, but being uh, both a Star Wars and Star Trek fan, and I know that's going to upset a lot of people, but I don't care. Um, they both have created amazing universes. Uh, and over the course of about 50 some years for Star Wars and 40 and change for, no, for Star Trek and 40 and change for Star Wars, there is there has been hundreds, if not thousands of people who have contributed to those universes and they've become, they take a life on their of their own. And I find that uh, amazing because just a one idea that's, taking on culturally because people for some reason like it and then it becomes its own thing. And now you have canon and non-canon and movies and TV shows and cartoons and books and comic novels, graphic novels. It's amazing how much that stuff is of that stuff is produced. Yeah. I think when, you know, at a certain point when the audience of something is so big, the audience creates more of that world for us to experience. I think that's the best part of it too. Mm-hmm. I think that if you want to get into like sort of, you know, fan fiction in either of these worlds, it's probably limitless at this point. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I'm I'm not a fan to the point where I go to conventions and create my own fictions, but as uh, someone who's been watching a lot of that stuff, I find that really cool. Um, there's one question I want to ask you, and it's it's a bit um, unrelated to what we've we've just talked about, but do you have any mentors? I mean, my parents for sure. They would be the ones who are my mentors in life. Uh, my father is one of the most kind and interesting people. You can give him a string and he will make an entire web out of it. You can just, you know, pick any topic. All he needs is one sentence and you can get him going and he can talk about it. And his ability to generate ideas on any topic from such a small piece of information is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mom might be a more traditional idea of a mentor. Uh, because she is very encouraging. She's always, you know, makes me look at what I'm doing and makes me look at how to improve at what I'm doing. That's great. Do you have any other mentors uh, other than your parents or they would be just 
two of the biggest influences in your life? And my brother as well. My brother and I are very different personalities. Um, he is, so before, you know, I may say that I describe my sort of vision in vague terms because I like the idea of, you know, people sort of contributing everything going into it. He would be the opposite. He is very uh, specific in the way he likes to do things. And if he has a vision, it's, you know, entirely there. And mm -hmm. he's very uh, fastidious at filling out all the details of that. So are you are you complementary with one another? Mm -hmm. I mean, we are and we aren't. Of course, we're brothers, which means we fought all the time. But it also, when you fight with someone enough, I think you learn how to fight with them in a constructive way. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of learned that we should each sort of take our own separate paths so that we don't you know, overlap too much. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that in itself requires a certain understanding. And that is how we've always worked together. And yeah, we do. We have very complementary skills in that regard because his are much better suited to certain aspects of the business and he gets to control those and he's really good at them too. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about risk. Um, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? I mean, the coffee shop is definitely going to be the biggest risk that I'll have taken. It is, I'm doing it in such a different way and it's such a different design style and idea from coffee shops that exist out there. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my work in the wood world is different because wood is a very slow moving industry mm -hmm. and you can look at how everyone else is doing things and you can learn from them, mm -hmm. which I did. Mm -hmm. I learned sort of how, you know, wood photography is done and all of those things. And from there, you sort of, your ideas evolve from a starting point. Whereas the coffee shop, I'm not really starting from where everyone else is. I'm starting from a completely different place. Mm -hmm. So I wake up some days and I feel utterly confident that I'm doing the right thing. And then other days I wake up and I think it's going to be a complete disaster. No one's going to understand what I'm doing. Um, I think that's proof that it's a risk and that it's a really big risk. It is. Uh, and I can definitely relate to that uh, in my own experience. But I think the, the, the risk is real. It's there, but it's also the upside, if it works, is also going to be huge because people are going to be talking about it. And even the people who don't talk about it, but just have a great experience coming in the morning, getting their coffee and talking to a smiling barista or getting being given a flower and they sit down at the workstation, that's that has the potential to change, literally change people or the way people think about coffee. And... Uh, and who knows what it's going to become. I think it's very exciting. But yeah, I, I can see how that's definitely a risk. In, uh, but you, you seem to have um, enough of uh, an idea of where you're going and the right people helping you uh, achieving that, that vision. So I hope it works out for you, but I guess time will tell, right? Time will tell. And it's you know not to be the cliche of no risk, no reward. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you know engaging with risk is a personal learning experience, which is important. Um, but even if it is a risk and, you know, if the whole thing is, you know, completely missed by people, they don't get it. The few people that did come in and understood what I was going for would make me feel enough of a reward that no matter what happens, I think it'll be okay. And that's all you can hope for, right? If you really believe in what you do and, um, and just even if you make a difference in one person's life. Mm -hmm. That's that's a, a huge win in some way. Yeah. If one person discovers they love Ethiopian coffee, I will be super happy. And it was the same thing. Like I, I was telling earlier, I, we just did this talk on uh, visions for designers and stuff. And my biggest fear was like, what if we get no one or one person to show up? And I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter because this is something I believe in. And 
I'm going to go for it and I'm going to deliver the best I can. And if I make a difference in one person's life, then it was worth the effort. The weeks of planning and like um, literally full-time job for the last month. But it was extremely rewarding that way. So I totally get uh, where you're coming from. Yeah. I think that's also a lesson I may have learned from film and music as well, is that you may create the greatest piece of art ever. It doesn't mean people are going to see it. So you can do whatever it is, but getting an audience is always a different story from creating something great. And talent doesn't equate success, right? Uh, there are two different things because you can be moderately talented and very successful and you can be hugely talented and not successful. And sometimes it just comes down to the way you promote yourself, right? True. I think marketing is now an additional tool that is absolutely necessary for anything to succeed. Uh, it goes hand in hand with talent. I don't think talent alone is going to get an audience for you. Um, but, you know, marketing alone isn't going to get a happy audience. No, and I think marketing is kind of an art form in some ways. And not if you think of traditional advertising, but there's examples of companies out there that have marketed themselves differently and, and it becomes enjoyable because it actually speaks to something we as humans can relate to. If I want to buy toilet paper, I'm not going to buy it because I see a fluffy bear on a charming commercial. I hate those. But there are tons of funny commercials out there that, present our products in a different way. And I think that's that's where that's where it becomes an art form, right? It's just how do you connect? And I guess that goes back to the vision too. How do you connect what you're offering to people's emotion? Because, and that's proven by science, um, and you, you must know this, but it's I think it's important to say, decision-making is strictly based on feelings and emotion. It's never based on facts and figures. And that's why companies like Apple sell their products like hotcakes and people who make Android phones are always struggling because they always talk about, oh, we have a better camera, we're better this, we're better that. But they never talk about their products like Apple, which is where enablers of creativity or where the embodiment of the David versus Goliath ethos from uh, the day where Apple was aiming for IBM before IBM become disappeared. So I think that's really important to keep in mind as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so here's a second to last question, and it's a bit of a visioning exercise. Um, it's not meant to be grim. So I just want you to picture yourself on your deathbed, hopefully many, many years from now. What would be the legacy you'd want to leave behind? Hmm. That's a tough one. Well, I would like to encourage people to think in a way that's similar to what I think about things. And so if I could have some sort of legacy, you know, what I would put on my tombstone, I would definitely want to be a riddle of some kind. Some type of riddle that the more you think about it, the closer your ways of thinking would have been like how I thought of things. I think that's what I would like it to be. I think when people look back at me, I'd like them to think about, you know, the things I cooked for them for dinner. Mm -hmm. I like them to think about me in terms of, you know, the things that I did for them, I guess. I think that's so what made more. you uh, uh, a human being, basically? Yeah, I like my humanity to be remembered. I think that's important. Yeah. Right? Um, other than that, I mean, I'd also like to be a grand event, though. I was for sure my passing to be some sort of spectacle. Because I feel like there's, I want everyone to celebrate. I know it's maybe, you know, part of the culture that I was brought up in. But I think that celebrating death is such a better way than being sad about it. I think if you can attach happy memories to someone who's no longer there, you know, when they're in a bad place, the person who misses you, they can think about you to feel better. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. 
a much better legacy to leave than to be a sad spot whenever they're reminded of you. Yeah, and I think in, in our culture, there's way too much emphasis on the loss, which is there. I mean, you have to acknowledge it and, and you have to live with it. Uh, and it's something that's very close to me because my mother passed away last year, as I think you know. Um, and you can't, you can't evade that. It's there and it's going to be there for the rest of your life. It gets easier over time, but it's something you have to deal with. But the other side of that coin is, yes, what are the, the happy things that we can remember about that person? What have we learned from them? Um, I personally found actually a sense of purpose out of um, my mother's own sense of purpose and what she did for a living. And that was the biggest gift she could have ever given me because that's going to carry me through life for the rest of my life. And so, yeah, there's days you're incredibly sad, but like you said, if you think about that person and it makes you happy, um, all the better, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a good relationship to have with someone, especially if you can't see them. So last question is a bit more um, joyous and uh, stones or beetles? Stones or beetles? Oh man, they're both outside my generation, but I probably listened to the Stones a lot more when I was young and I listened to the Beatles a lot more now. So, so that's a bit of I a transition. you haven't chosen. I haven't chosen? Okay, I'll take the Beatles. The Beatles? Yeah, it's hard to say no to that. And why is that? Why? Mm -hmm. I have to go with emotion here. It's just my feeling. I don't have, I haven't thought about it. That's a good enough answer. Well, that concludes the interview. Fraser, it's been a pleasure. Um, Thank you so much. And I'm hoping we can have many more of those conversations in the future. Absolutely. Hey again, Arno here. If you like this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio, edited by Ryan Akhtari, with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at revelator underscore TO or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.